Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them might might it be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which was considered to be the greatest. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you shall be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Taken together, All four of the gospel accounts offer us the complete picture of the room where it happened, where Jesus reframes the celebration of an old, treasured, foundational story into a new covenant, a blessed sacrament, a holy table to which generation after generation of Christians have returned to again and again. For one last time, Jesus and his closest companions, his disciples, gather together in a large, furnished room. Everything has been prepared in advance for a party. However, before the festivities begin, the host of this meal, the founder of the feast, Jesus, takes hold of a basin and a towel to wash the feet of his followers. The King of Kings, who already set aside divine privilege to come down to us to be born as a human being, humbles himself yet again in order to serve his royal subjects. After meeting some initial resistance, Jesus completes this menial task and then redirects his followers to the theme of the evening. The upper room has been configured for the telling, the reliving of a story, the gospel before the cross, a remembrance of God's deliverance long ago of his people from slavery and death at the hands of Egypt. And it's in the context of the celebration of this event, the Passover, after the Seder, a lavish meal infused with rich symbolism, after this meal is seemingly ended, that Jesus does something unexpected, something new. Taking some bread, Jesus blesses it, breaks it, 
and gives it to his disciples. Jesus repeats the same liturgy as he raises the cup of wine from the table, again taking it, blessing it, and offering it to them. He offers both the bread and the wine as his body and blood, as signs of a greater exodus. The good shepherd begins to cast a vision of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus speaks of a new covenant where his sacrifice will become our victory over the bondage of evil. Jesus points to his return to come back and take us to be with him to the place that he's prepared for us as our passport beyond our fear and the finality of death. All of this is openly shared by Jesus despite his assertion of treachery among his closest followers. Someone in their company, Jesus quietly announces, will not stay true. Even now, Jesus insists, the shadow of betrayal looms over their fellowship at the table. In response to this disturbing accusation by their master, the disciples do not stop and examine their own hearts. Rather than look within, the disciples start pointing fingers at each other. Instead of confessing their own doubts and fears, they dispute their capacity for disloyalty. And yet, and yet, even though only one of them will hand Jesus over to be arrested, all of them will, in the end, break faith with Jesus. Denial, running for cover, hiding behind a closed door, falling asleep in the hour of temptation, proclaiming they have no king but Caesar. Betrayal takes many forms when we turn our backs on those we profess to love. Changing the conversation, for example, can also be a form of betrayal. And that's just what the disciples do next. Disturbed by Jesus' talk of death and deception, the disciples shift the conversation to what proves to be an even more disturbing fixation. As pointing fingers at each other soon becomes an argument, as it always does, the disciples move from assigning blame to jockeying for position and prominence. When we don't want to face our weaknesses, when we don't want to face our weaknesses, it's always easier to brag about our strengths. And so the disciples debate back and forth about who is the greatest of them all. Now, now we've got a family dinner, right? Now we've got a family dinner because in most homes, at most tables, this is the moment where the real fireworks begin. When all the work that went into creating a special meal, a meaningful gathering, a perfect day, they all get shot to hell. They all get shot to hell by the same old family disputes coming up yet again. Because this debate about who is the greatest isn't a new argument. The disciples have been down this road before with Jesus. Do we remember? Back, way back when, when they were ministering out together in Galilee, after Jesus had told his followers for the second time of his coming death, his disciples responded by quarreling over which of them was the greatest. In that moment, Jesus literally set a child in their midst and said, Whoever is least among you, this one will be great. Well, apparently, this object lesson was lost on the disciples or forgotten in the years that had passed. Because here they go again, having the same old tired debate at the worst possible moment. I mean, timing is everything, as we like to say. And think about this. Jesus has just shared he only has hours left to live. 
through bread and wine, Jesus has offered to them tokens of his body and blood that would be given for their redemption. Only a few hours earlier, Jesus lowered himself to wash their feet and then later came back around with a new commandment, right? To love one another as Jesus has loved them, to serve each other as they witnessed Jesus serve them. Moments ago, seconds, Jesus cautioned his disciples that the seeds of betrayal were taking root among them. And in response... All the disciples manage to take away from all that is to squabble about who is the greatest among them. And at pretty much any other family gathering, this is where things would get loud and messy. This is where feelings would get hurt and words would get said that would make things worse rather than better. But this isn't just any family meal. This is Holy Communion. This is the table where the depths of our brokenness are eclipsed by the wideness of God's grace. This is where Jesus holds us together despite our differences by recasting our delusions of individual grandeur into a profound awareness of our common unity, both in our need for him and in our call to serve him. Who is the greatest? Jesus could have answered that question by pointing to himself. I mean, in doing so wouldn't have been arrogant because it would have been true. Jesus could have briefly outlined his resume, you know? I mean, just from his time on earth, forget creation, just from his time on earth as the only truly great man in the room. Uh, Preacher of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, deliverer of miraculous signs and wonders. Uh, Shall we go on here? Oh, food provider to more than 5,000 people. Raiser of the dead, the one whom the winds and the waves obeyed. If we're honest... If we were Jesus, that would be our first move, pulling out our resume. Jesus could have pointed to himself as the greatest one of all, but instead, Jesus, being who he is, turns this moment into a teaching opportunity. Appeals to greatness? Yeah, they sure look good on a t-shirt or a lawn sign. Appeals to greatness? That kind of talk is what the people want, no question. That kind of talk appeals to greatness. It'll draw a crowd. A crowd, it'll win you lots of votes, no question. Jesus begins by recognizing how we perceive greatness, the kind of leaders we gravitate towards in our desire to be great again. Jesus says the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. In other words, the kings we herald as great lord their greatness, their status, their brilliance, their accomplishments, their power, their dominance over others. And in acting this way, exercising their authority first for their own benefit and acclaim, lead such, leaders, such leaders label themselves as benefactors. Benefactors of the people. Benefactors for the people. And you ought to detect more than a hint of sarcasm by Jesus here. Because today, where we might use the word benefactor positively, in like the spirit of charity, Jesus is most definitely being pejorative. Because you see, in the Roman Empire... Benefaction was all the rage. Benefaction was the prescribed method for getting ahead. It was often the only way to receive a helping hand. How did benefaction work? Find someone better off than you, then do them a service for which they'll reward you. You know, you scratch my back and I'll throw you a bone. Play the game and you'll be taken care of. Accumulate enough favors and maybe, just maybe, you'll earn a seat at the table. Someday, if you pay your dues. 
Benefaction was all about power and dominance. Benefaction enabled those who had it all to feel good about themselves, to look great in the public eye for doing a little something for those who didn't have. All of that without really having to lose any of their power. Benefaction created a system that justified an empire built on the backs of many, but enjoyed only by a select few. Benefaction put the burden on those in need, those who were already behind, those who were struggling to be responsible for catching up, responsible for attending to their own welfare. It's an economic philosophy, a prescription for greatness, by the way, still very much in play in today's world. Jesus, however, summarily rejects such a pathway for us when he plainly states, but you are not to be like that. And he then goes on to redefine greatness, not as power achieved through dominance, but rather power expressed through service. Jesus returns to that object lesson he tried all those years ago unsuccessfully to teach his disciples once before, as he says, instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. In other words, the gateway to greatness is not moving on up, but coming down coming down to the level of a child. Children aren't self-sufficient. To be like a child is to adopt a posture of dependence rather than independence. The power of which Jesus speaks is not gained by falling back on being the oldest, the most tenured, the most experienced, the smartest person in the room. No. The power that Jesus is talking about is received by acknowledging, regardless of one's physical age or time on the job, regardless of all that, of recognizing one's continual youth and inexperience when it comes to how the kingdom of God works. It is to own rather than to deny one's ignorance and therefore to confess one's continual need for the Lord's wisdom. It is to cry out rather than to justify one's mistakes to confess one's constant need of the Lord's direction in their life. It is to get up each morning. It is to walk through each day. It is to go to bed at night relying on God's power for everything, from the beat of one's heart to the breath in one's mouth, from the daily bread on one's table to the salvation of one's soul and everything in between. In other words, Jesus says the power of true greatness is not something we can achieve. The power of true greatness is only something we can receive. Receive from the one who is the greatest of all, Jesus Christ. And once received, how are we to exercise the greatness of our salvation, all that mercy and forgiveness, all that grace and love, all that wisdom and direction, all that hope and joy, all the presence and provision of God in our lives that we are given by Jesus? How are we to exercise the greatness of the kingdom of God, which is conferred upon us by Christ? We are to rule. We are to be great by serving one another. And just to make this part, that last part, crystal clear, Jesus adds, for I am among you as one who serves. We learn a lot about someone from how they are described by others. And the question is, how have we as the church Describe to a watching world who Jesus is as we've argued and debated like the disciples over these past 12 months. Who have we described Jesus to be? Because the thing is, 
we often choose or to highlight or stress those expressions of Christ that most closely align with our own values and desires. Over this last year, there's been a lot of talk about Jesus as worthy of being worshipped, not socially distanced, but in person, inside our church buildings. Over this last year, there's been a lot of talk about Jesus as victorious over sickness and disease, and therefore, we ought to walk by faith instead of fear in the midst of a viable threat of infection, despite the number of people who are dying. Over this past year, there's been a lot of talk about Jesus bringing judgment on a sinful world through this global pandemic, through all the civil unrest, through that contested election, and so forth. But have we, are we, describing Jesus to the world the way he describes himself? Because Jesus, Jesus not just here, not just here, but repeatedly throughout the Gospels, Jesus singularly describes himself as a servant. Not a teacher, not a healer, not a miracle worker, not the Messiah, not even our King. Though he is all of these things, Jesus declares himself to be one who serves, who serves those in need, who serves those who are sick, who serves those who are hurting, who serves those who have been cast aside, who serves those who long to be seen, who serves those who are dying. The very greatest one of all makes himself our servant, not only by washing our feet and offering us his broken body and blood, but by bearing all our guilt and shame by carrying the consequence of all the chaos and brokenness born of our rebellions and obedience. The very greatest one of all humbles himself to serve us all the way to the cross, all the way to the grave, all the way through death and hell. And now Jesus calls us to be like him, to find our true greatness not in living for ourselves, but in serving others. And the thing is, this is as much a challenge to us today as it has ever been within the body of Christ. Living in the age of COVID-19 has exposed for all the world to see that we as the church are more concerned about our own status, our own comfort, our own well-being than with any suffering that's going on in the world. At a time when sacrifice and service in the name of Christ was needed the most, we proved to be more interested in defending our own rights and protections, in protesting on behalf of our own liberties and desires. We've become so focused on not losing our power, our relevance as the church, that we've squandered the opportunity to reveal the true greatness of Jesus by following Christ in emptying ourselves of our privilege for the benefit and betterment of others. We have forgotten the remarkable and sobering paradox Jesus shares with us that whoever seeks to save their life will lose it, but those who lose their life will keep it. Greatness eludes us as the body of Christ in this crucial and trying time because we have been too busy pointing fingers rather than reaching out with open arms. Greatness eludes us as the body of Christ because we are still vying for power and position rather than yielding and trusting God, worshiping Jesus, not by getting back inside our building, but going out into the world and compassionately ministering to others. The point is not that serving others will get us to greatness. 
that serving others will make us great. The point is serving others is a reflection of the greatness of God in delivering all that we need in Jesus Christ. Greatness eludes us, beloved, as we continue to focus on what we want, what we demand, rather than gratefully living out of what we have, the fullness of what the Lord provides. When we serve from a place of want or lack, any service we give becomes about our need to find fullness and satisfaction. We're back to benefaction in that. We're back to serving, right? Whether we realize it consciously or not, we're back to serving because of what's in it for me. But on the other hand, on the other hand, when we serve from the fullness of what God provides, when our greatness comes not from what we achieve, but comes out of the infinite abundance in Christ that we receive, the crown, the authority, the gift of his kingdom that he confers upon us, we have only but to give. Drawing from the infinite well, of the Lord's grace, we are able to honestly serve with love and compassion, no longer needing to get, but in all blessings, to give. What is true greatness? Giving out of what the Lord has given us, humbly relying on God for all that we have and then holding nothing back from what God provides in coming alongside each other. What is true greatness? Serving others as Christ continues to serve us. And such greatness isn't just one of the many elements of the Christian life, one of the many aspects of being the church. Serving others out of love for Jesus is what constitutes our life and our greatness together as the body of Christ. For serving others is how we proclaim the gospel, not just in words, but in truth. Serving others is how we fulfill the greatest commandment of neighborly love, loving others, family, friends, strangers, and enemies all like Jesus. Serving others is how we both point to and celebrate the inbreaking of the reign of God's kingdom, the dawn of a new creation. Serving others is how we become the church, the body of Christ, not by showing up for a worship service, but by our expressing our worship of Christ through our care and compassion towards those in need. In this very room, in this space prepared for us, let us then receive Jesus in the bread and the wine. Like the bread and the wine taken by Jesus, let us remember we have been chosen by Christ. Let us remember the chosenness of every child of God and together, together give thanks to God for his mercy and grace. Like the bread and the wine blessed by Jesus, let us recognize we too are blessed by our Lord. Let us recognize we are blessed to be a blessing to others each day of our lives. Like the bread and the wine poured out by Jesus, let us acknowledge how we are also broken in so many ways, broken in our bodies and in our hearts, broken in our homes and in our world. And let us acknowledge how Jesus calls us out of our unique brokenness, which he is healing. He calls us to be poured out in solidarity and advocacy to those who hurt and ache in the midst of the fracturedness of their lives. Like the bread and the wine given by Jesus, let us realize we are also given, given by Christ in service to others. Let us realize each of our lives is a sacred gift from God, both to those close to us and to those we will encounter, but for a brief moment in time and may never fully know. As we receive, 
as we take and eat and drink, as we become, by the grace of God, the body of Christ, let us keep our eyes on Jesus. Because he's not done teaching us. He's not yet done. He's not yet done revealing to us the nature of true greatness. With every next step Jesus is about to take on our behalf, he will show us just how great is our God and just how great our service to others in his name can be. Amen.
If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. 